Hello, readers. Susan Lin is a psychologist, a world-renowned expert on creative play and the impact of media and commercial marketing on children, and the founding director of the organization now known as Fair Play. She's also the author of Consuming Kids, The Case for Make-Believe, and her newest book, Who's Raising the Kids? Big Tech, Big Business, and the Lives of Children. Susan, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. So what was your goal with Who's Raising the Kids? Uh, well, I can tell you, first of all, what my goal was not. My goal was not to make parents feel guilty. My goal was to help anyone who cares about children to realize that the, you know, digitized, over-commercialized culture that children wake up to every day is um, toxic. It's toxic not just for them and not just for their families, but actually for all of society. And I wanted to help people realize that this is not just a family problem, it's really a societal problem and that there actually are things that we can do about it. Yeah, we're in a strange place with, with all of this right now because if you are the parent, and I know this from experience, if you're the parent with eight and a six-year-old and your kid doesn't have a tablet, in some cases doesn't have a phone apparently, we're going to get into this a little bit later, then you're the odd one out. And if your kid's aren't spending several hours in front of a television or in front of a screen in some way, shape or form, and we're not even talking about school, then you're the one who's doing things in a bizarre manner. And there's something really wrong with that. Yes. The, and, and, you know, we, you know, basically we've been bought and sold by big tech and big business. And, um, we've, um, bought into the idea that, that time with screens or time with tech is educational for all kids from babies, you know, on up through adolescence. And, um, and that kids to need to be in front of technology or need to be using tech devices in order to be uh, popular or in order to succeed in life. I mean, it's, it's, um, they've done a really, you know, good job of selling educators, parents, all of us on um, how essential their, uh, their products are. Um, and to some extent, they've become essential. So it, it's not so much the tech itself, which is basically hugely powerful and seductive, but it's the business model that big tech uses to um, hook kids all the time, to get them to nag their parents and um, to get them basically to fall in love with their devices. That's right. And we'll get into the internet interconnectivity of it all shortly. Chapter one, though, is what children need and why corporations can't provide it. As you point out, Susan, the neural connectivities in children's brains 
are hugely impacted by repeated experiences, shaping everything from behavior to habits, values, and even future responses to things that will happen. This cannot be stressed enough. Recurring positive interactions with people, places, and things will literally stick with people, with children rather, for the rest of their lives. And the same can be said about negative experiences as well. So how does this immersion in and reliance on this hyper-commercialized, digitized society impact all of that? Well, I think that what we have to remember is that young children learn and grow and develop using all of their senses and, and, and that they develop, healthy development occurs in relationship, in relationship from, from you know, infancy, in relationship with adults who love them and, and care about them. And one thing that the tech industry um, has been doing is coming between parents and children. Um, you know, devices are marketed as taking over what have traditionally been parental roles, like reading stories or telling stories or, um, or helping with homework. And, um, and so the devices are marketed to parents as being time-saving, making their lives easier. Um, but you know what, what's happening is that we are raising a generation of children who turn to tech for soothing and amusing themselves instead of um, developing their own inner resources and instead of really um, attaching and, and deriving pleasure and wonder from the world around them. Yeah, and speaking of, why do you believe that awe is an under-discussed quality of pro-social behaviors that we should be nurturing more in kids nowadays? Yeah, um, well, awe was only recently proven to be a, an, an emotion, which is interesting, a universal emotion across cultures. And um, it's, it's, um, it's essential to a sense of wonder. And, and, you know, after experiencing awe, people tend to um, be more pro-social, they may be more generous. And, and the experience of, of awe is feeling simultaneously small, but also part of something larger and, and a recognition that, that you know, we are connected. We are connected you know, to each other. We are connected to the universe. Um, I, I, I think um, providing children with opportunities for, for wonder and for awe is certainly essential for helping them connect with nature. And, you know, it's essential that we all connect with and celebrate nature because, you know, nature, the planet itself is in a lot of danger right now from global warming. 
So, so it, helping children develop, you know, a sense of wonder about the world around them is just really crucial. Well, awe also implies the ability to be present and to pay attention to what's going on around you. And I think one result, one outcome of awe is a curiosity as to why something is happening and a willingness to ask questions and to try and find answers as well. And those also really seem to be lost art forms nowadays. You know, um, it's interesting that you raise, you know, curiosity because curiosity is, um, is, is a normal um, state for neurotypical kids. I mean, that they, they are born primed to be curious. And, um, you know, one of the things, you know, that I do in the chapter that you mentioned, actually, what children really need and why corporations can't give it to them. Um, I talk about um, my cousin Ellen sent me a video and, you know, it was technically a terrible video, you know, it was just, you know, the, it was bad. But anyway, but, um, but when I saw it, it, it just took my breath away. And it was a video of her 14 month old granddaughter sitting on a blanket in silence, which is unusual for kids today. I mean, because one of the, the problems with commercial culture is that it's extremely noisy and busy and there's all sorts of stimulation coming at kids and they need opportunities for silence. We all need opportunities for silence in order to, to think and to dream. So she's sitting there, she's safe. My cousin is there. Um, and, um, and so this, this 14 month old Ariel, all she has to play with are um, what are, would now be thought of as retro, terribly old fashioned boring toys. <laughs> An old baby doll that doesn't talk or do anything and also a stuffed bear. So she's mouthing the, the baby doll, which is, you know, what babies do. She's mouthing the doll and her hand is wandering, you know, around the doll's body and she gets to the doll's toes and, and she feels the toes. And you can see her little mind working. I mean, it's like she's thinking protuberances which she's not thinking the word protuberances, but you could see just her mind working, these little things that are sticking out. And so she feels her ear, but it's not right. And you could see that as well. Well, no, it's not like my ear. And her hand goes up the body to the doll's ear and she traces the doll's ear and then she feels her own and she traces the doll's ear again. And then she feels both of her ears 
And she does it one more time, feels the ear, traces the ear, traces her own ear, and then she goes away. I mean, she doesn't go away, but she just stops doing that and goes on to something else. I mean, that's such an incredible example of, of human learning that, that is born of our innate ability to be curious. You know, she, she's, you've got this 14 month old, which is what is set, but it, with what is essentially a sculpture of a human body. And somehow she, she thinks that the body of the doll might be like her body. And she sets about trying to prove it to herself. That is, is so astonishing, not because it, it's unusual, but because this capacity is, is, you know, in all, as I said before, all neurotypical children. And, and that, you know, capacity for wondering about something and then figuring out how to satisfy your curiosity, being willing to fail, and, and then, you know, meeting your goal and then going on to something else. I mean, that's so important, you know, for not just, you know, for babies, but for life to, to you know, find within yourself the capacity to initiate something and to follow through and finish it up. I mean, the jargon, the educational jargon is executive function. That's a really critical skill. And now there's actually research suggesting that the more, um, the more screen time babies and toddlers have, the, le or the less developed their capacity for executive function. And that's really troubling. That's really sad. I wanted to get back to the subject of sitting in silence for just a sec, because you used to work with Fred Rogers, AKA the late, great Mr. Rogers. And we could probably do an hour podcast just based on uh, that experience of yours in and of itself. But why did he espouse the virtue of sitting in silence for adults, but especially for kids too? For both. Um, and this was, I mean, the conversation that I had uh, with him about silence was long before smartphones and tablets, you know, where there's so much more noise today. I, because I, uh, it, the, the importance of being able to, you know, to go deep within yourself and to, to recognize yourself as part of, but separate from, you know, the, the rest of the world, to be able to dream and imagine and, and think. I mean, it's just, you know, he, he felt that, I mean, it was just so important. In fact, he felt it was so important that he did a show where, he just said, we're just going to be quiet for a minute. And he sat on television for a minute in complete silence. It was extraordinary. 
That is greatness. And I think one of the other benefits to silence also, Susan, is that it really allows your brain to recharge because we live in this world where we constantly have things that are trying to grab our attention. Now, it's one thing when you're walking around on a city street, let's say, and if you're not paying attention, it could literally be life and death because there are uh, there are cars, there are other pedestrians, there are things happening where you do have to pay attention. But even the the bright, bold advertising happening on city streets is one thing. But even sitting here in the suburbs today, if I were to just take a leisurely walk through the neighborhood, that is going to be great for my brain for when I do actually have to focus on the other things that matter throughout the day as well. And for kids who obviously have this huge capacity to learn and to be curious and all sorts of other positive qualities that can be attributed to helping the brain grow. If they don't get those moments of silence where they're always watching a screen or they're always pushing some button on a toy that makes a noise or is supposed to do this or that, then they're going to be extremely zapped throughout the day. And there's going to be a point where they're no longer able to focus or pay attention on what's happening in front of them. I think that um, one of the concerns is um, the, that it, it um, can affect um, the ability to sustain attention. And, and one of the things that happened in children's television um, is that they basically, kids have short attention spans, so we need to have really short segments, hmm. you know, and so, and, and it has to be really fast paced. And so what, what that deprives children of is, you know, the capacity to sustain attention and, and to let things unfold and not have to be constantly bombarded with stimulation. And, and you know, not being able to sustain attention is problematic throughout life. And even, um, you know, uh, adults, you know, now, you know, are saying, I just can't read long articles anymore. You know, it's just it's it's just hard to to focus on them, and that's really troubling because um, because we miss a lot, and some of what we miss can be really crucial for you know democracy or um, you know protecting the planet. Yeah, and sadly, I think that extends beyond the screen issue. I think that the standard Western American diet plays a lot into that as well, where the uh, the amount of sugar and all sorts of other junk that is consumed just adds to this uh, this generalized attention deficit disorder that we suffer as a society. So chapter two is titled, Who Wins the Games Tech Plays? It is scary the lengths that corporations will go to try and get their hooks into even the youngest consumers. And I put consumers in quotes because when you're talking about kids younger than three or four, they really don't have much of a conscious decision that goes into uh, staring at whatever it is that their parents are putting in front of them. 
But for a good example of this, what was Mattel's attempt at this with a smart device called Aristotle? Yeah, um, that was really um, interesting. They, um, they came out with a device that was um, supposed to be able to help kids with homework, tell them stories, you know, basically do what parents and, and caregivers normally do that is part of establishing, you know, relationships. And um, it, as Mattel announced, you know, a few months in advance that, that you know, it was gonna launch Aristotle and it was supposed to like grow with the child. You know, you could start when, it, you know, there was a baby and then just, it would just, you know, keep going. And so, um, so what was then Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood, which is the advocacy organization that my colleagues and I founded in 2000. I think that Aristotle came out in 2017. Um, and, and Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood, which is now called Fair Play, actually launched a campaign to try to convince parents not to buy it. And it was successful. Well, actually what happened is that it's not even clear to me that it ever got on the market, that Mattel pulled the product because it got so much bad press. Hmm. So screen time has skyrocketed among children since the COVID-19 pandemic began two and a half years ago. Is there any decent research that shows screens provide an adequate substitute for human interactions and real life experiences? Because that would shock me if so. No, absolutely not. I mean, and I mean, there, you know, there are benefits to technology or there can be, again, it's the business model. So that, you know, big tech is, you know, constantly prioritizing profit over the well-being of children and um, doing everything they can to, you know, capture kids' attention, to get them to nag their parents for stuff. And um, it, it can't substitute for human interaction. I mean, I, I mean, that's, it's, it's ridiculous to even think about but devices are being marketed to um, as being able to do that. I mean, in 2022 now, there are these what are called personalized robots hmm. on the market. I mean, they're expensive now. They won't be probably, you know, in the future, but they're expensive. But you know, they're claiming to be able to teach kids social emotional development things i mean and and that's that's terrible first of all because they're coming between children and the human beings who love them but it it's also terrible because they're they're owned by and run by corporations and and given that you know we are all surveilled so much and if you know these smart 
robots are also a form of surveillance. If they're going to personalize something, that means that they know what kids are doing. And, and, and so they're, you know, the potential is just, you know, to target kids with um, personalized advertising. And robots seem like they're, you know, in the future, but they're here. Um, and actually, the, their precursors, which are incredibly popular now, are um, digital assistants, personal assistants. And Amazon, for instance, is um, marketing Alexa as, you know, being able to help kids when they're bored and um, being able to help them with homework and, you know, basically, again, you know, take over parental responsibilities. So I bought um, an, an Echo Dot for kids, which um, is the smart speaker that, that provides access to a children's Alexa. What'd you find so out I, from that? Pardon? What did you find out from that? Well, um, first of all, uh, Amazon markets Alexa as being commercial free. It has a um, I'm bored feature where a child can say, Alexa, I'm bored which I did pretending to be like a three or four year old kid. Alexa, I'm bored. And Alexa said, essentially, would you like to play a Barbie game? I said, no. It said, would you like to play a SpongeBob SquarePants game? I said, no. It offered me Wizarding, Wizarding World, which is the Harry Potter franchise. I said, no. It offered me an American Girl doll one. Um, then I probably one other, and I kept saying no, and then it just stopped. Every single, every single um, opportunity or activity that was being offered to me was an ad on this allegedly commercial-free device. Very sneaky. All these relationships that they have with these other companies. They're trying to push their kids in those directions versus just saying, oh, go ring the doorbell of the kid next door and go play hide and seek or something. Or find something to do on your own. Well, and, that, just get, that just gets back to the problem of sometimes kids need to be bored and they need to figure it out without turning to technology to help them do so. I mean, that just gets down to basic problem solving, which is also shot now. You know, yes. And also, um, I think that you know, it's hard to have a, a, a child who's frustrated and bored. I mean, they're not fun to be around. Sure. But, um, ad but adults, you know, think that the solution to that is either they have to play with the kids themselves. And, you know, we should play with our kids sometimes so we don't have to do it all the time. That's for sure. No. And we can't do it all the time. Um, or, or that they have to give kids something to do. And the technology provides kids instantly with something absorbing to do. But boredom is actually useful for children. If parents can just hang in, the kids will find something to do. 
I mean, if you watch kids, um, as I often do, when they're standing in line in a store, they don't just stand still. I mean, they sort of dance or they put their body into funny shapes or you know they walk funny. They do something to entertain themselves. And that capacity to you know amuse yourself is just so you know important for um, first of all you know for getting to know yourself and what what you care about and what you don't care about what you find fun how what what you find to be fun might be different from what other kids find to be fun it's a way of getting to know yourself and also. It, it's a way of um, not being dependent on these huge conglomerates to amuse you. You were once encouraged that the highly popular game Minecraft might be the exception to the destructive influence tech has on kids. Why do you no longer believe that, Susan? Um, Minecraft, when it came out, intrigued me because it was at, at the time, like it seemed to me, completely creative. One of the problems with so many apps for kids is that it tells kids what to do, you know, and um, they, the apps tell kids what to do, like they're marketed as creative, but you only have like three options. There's only one way, if you're making a picture on many apps, there's only one way to do it. I mean, they really deprive kids of creativity. So I was um, intrigued by Minecraft and, and there was um, some commercialism that went along with it. But then it was sold to Microsoft and that just kind of, you know, exploded. And um, the last time I looked at Minecraft, which was, you know, when I was writing um, that chapter, actually, it, um, it, it was an awful lot like Fortnite. You know, the focus was not on creativity. It was more on battles, you know, you, you were playing with other kids or other people and that could be seen as an advantage. And it, it is, I mean, I watched a, an 11 year old playing Fortnite, you know, with a friend and I could see they were strategizing about the battle and I, you know, that, that was really neat but it comes with a cost, literally a cost, because, you know, what Fortnite does is, you know, offer, you know, these virtual things that kids can buy to decorate their avatars or, you know, whatever. And, you know, Fortnite very proudly says, or at least it used to, you know, this has nothing to do with being able to win at Fortnite, but what it does is promote envy because the kids can see what kids have the money to spend on new skins for their avatars or whatever, and what kids don't. And so um, it, I just think it, it was fun to watch, you know, this 11 year old with his friend, 
but it was also really sad that that their relationship and their play was being mediated by corporations. And the same is true of Minecraft now. And, and the other thing, I think one thing that really shocked me, I was on a panel um, about technology and there was a teacher on the panel who just loves Minecraft and you know used it in his classroom. And he, he, he said, you know, I live in New York City and my daughter has never built a treehouse until she built one with, my, with Minecraft. And I couldn't help myself. I said, well, she still hasn't built a treehouse. I mean, the idea that we don't differentiate between what happens you know, on a screen and what happens in real life, I mean, that's, you know, that's bizarre and troubling. And one thing that's going to, that is happening now that we all have to be, I think, braced for is the metaverse. Which is become, which is going to be um, more compelling than screens are now, and 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 more lifelike, but it's not real life, and it is controlled by corporations, and I assume will be filled with all kinds of marketing because that's how the people making the, the experiences in the metaverse, that's how they're gonna make money. Filled with all kinds of brands for sure. And brands is the subject of chapter three in your book and the brand plays on. Companies are now creating something called brand tribes to further increase consumption. What in the world is this? Cause I've never heard of this before. Yeah, yeah, I was at a, a marketing conference and um, and, and this woman was talking about how we had to think about tribes and, um, and, you know, the idea of tribes is that they form around a central principle or religion, you know, or something like that, or candidate or politician, you know, and and one of the things about attending marketing conferences is that, that they are good at identifying trends in society, but they never talk about whether, what are the pluses and minuses? What is the, what is the potential for, for a tribe being good for the world? And what is the potential for a tribe being bad for the world? They never talk about that. What they talk about is how to use tribes in order to promote brands and in order to promote, to promote lifetime brand loyalty. And so now what she was saying, and now tribes can be formed around brands, you know, and if you can get, you know, a tribe formed around your brand, I mean, that's a good way of inculcating brand loyalty and making money. You were at a different industry conference a few years ago that was specifically about marketing to kids. Side note, what a sad and disgusting gathering of sick, sick people. But at this conference, a tech exec advised those listening to, quote, reduce friction. What did he mean by this? And how does this play out for kids in the digital world? 
Yeah, um, it was funny. Um, actually, it was a woman and she said, you know, we have to reduce friction. And my, you know, as I write in the book, my experience of reducing friction has either to do with WD-40 or <laughs> family therapy. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it goes back, um, you know, possibly to Jeff Bezos, actually. You know, and what it means is reduce any obstacle to buying something. You know, and that's, you know, one of the reasons that Amazon is so financially acceptable, I mean, uh, successful, is that it's so easy, it's seamless. And, and um, it, it, you know, it's, you know, one click buying and next day delivery and, you know, all of that, it's so easy. And so, you know, that's what she was advising, you know, these, um, these toy, the toy and tech company executives who were there is, you know, reduce friction, make it easy, make it as easy as possible. Which also, you know, by the way, having everything so easy is also not such a good preparation for life. And that's another thing that worries me about um, technology and young children is um, if you press a button on a toy and just everything happens and all you've done is press a button, what's the message that you're getting? You know, I mean that, you know, things are easy. I can get a huge response by doing just about nothing. And, you know, the same, you know, can be true of a lot of apps. And, you know, in along with, or what goes along with executive function, that's a really important skill for kids to have, um, or attribute rather for kids to have is stamina, the capacity to keep at something and to keep trying, even if you don't get it right the first time, even, you know, even if it's hard. And, and one of the things I don't feel like I actively taught my daughter much and nor do I claim to be a perfect parent in any way. But one thing I did do when she was really young, she liked puzzles and you know, the one thing I did or one of the few things I actively taught her was if a puzzle piece doesn't fit one way, try another way. Mm. And I think that, you know, flexible thinking is also a really important skill in this world. The, the, the you know, ability to, to problem solve, to find different solutions, to think out of the box, to not get stuck you know, in one way of doing things if that way isn't working. Well, Susan, that's one reason why I love how much my six-year-old son loves Legos is because even though you do have instructions there, you're still having to find pieces and maybe you've grabbed the wrong piece and you have to figure out, figure that out. And sometimes you have to go back and rework things. It's great because one of those analog toys that uh, I think really has a, a whole lot more value than, than just the task at hand. But sadly, even Lego is digitized now. I bought him a Lego 
a couple months ago. And yeah, I guess I needed to read the fine print on the box. This Lego didn't even include instructions in the box. You actually had to go download the app, sign up for whatever Lego's digital services just to get the instructions to put this toy together. Yeah, and and hooking what used to be analog toys to um, technology also makes it much more likely that your child's play is being surveilled you know, and, and that that information could be used to, you know, for marketing. But, but and Lego is a really good example, you know, because it started out as a bucket of bricks. And, you know, maybe there were things, you know, that, that you know, you could make. But, but then what Lego started doing is becoming kits. So, so the message to kids is there's a right way to do this, which I find, you know, really sad and troubling. But then the kids started to be linked to media properties, Star Wars, Harry Potter. So not only is there one way to do things, basically it's an advertisement for um, the, the media and for other toys associated with that franchise. And then, you know, when Lego, it's not just that you need to download an app to play with the analog toy. There, there are a lot of Lego apps on, um, uh, you know, that, that kids can download. And I was at a marketing conference where, um, one of the presenters said, I just think it's fantastic that Lego is now, you know, online because you can't take a bag of bricks everywhere, but, you know, it's, it's so easy to take a phone or whatever. And first of all, you can take a bag of bricks in the car. And, and I just thought it was sad that he thought it was so wonderful that when kids are out and about, you know, they're going to be staring at a screen. Well, one of the best examples of franchises over the last 20 years that have really gotten their hooks into different generations is Pokemon. Yeah. Of course, many people probably remember the Pokemon Go insanity from a few years. I literally had to avoid accidents on the roads here in Austin from people who are just stopping their cars in the middle of the road to point their phone at some random field. Had to kick kids out of my front lawn who were trying to find some Pokemon creature in the bushes directly in front of our house. And thankfully, even though it still exists, that fad has come and gone. But, you know, one of the things, I mean, I mean, Pokemon, they're master marketers. I mean, my, my kids, my kids have the cards and they don't even watch any of the cartoons or anything. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, but what, what particularly troubled me about Pokemon Go is that it was so popular um, and that the public health community, a lot, you know, experts were lauding Pokemon Go, Pokemon Go because it was getting kids outside and, and they were moving and they were walking. And it was like this whole health thing. And, you know, in fact, 
you know, what the research showed ultimately is that, you know, once, you know, the, it, it, you know, it was going for a few months, the amount of time that kids were spending outside or were spending moving, you know, went back to what it was before. Yeah, that was complete corporate spin. Now you brought up a couple of other Pokemon products, I guess, in this book that I was unfamiliar with. So let's start with Pokemon Smile. What exactly is Pokemon Smile? Pokemon Smile is um, a um, an app to get your kids to brush their teeth. That's another thing that corporations do is that they take something that you know is a daily task and then figure out how to monetize that in some way. So you know you can monetize. You know Pokemon was monetizing that by linking brushing teeth with you know, collecting Pokemon and, and um, Pokemon creatures. And, you know, I, I think it's great, you know, when kids are really little to make things fun for them, but you can do that so easily without, you know, a corporation's products promoting themselves and all these other products to you, you don't need them. Um, yeah, so there was Pokemon Smile. Then I, there was Pokemon Sleep, which to when the book, when my book came out, or when I was going over, you know, the very, very last, you know, draft of it, Pokemon Sleep still hadn't come out. But you know, they were going to make sleep more like um, interesting and, and academic. Sorry, I meant to turn off my phone. I apologize. That's okay. I actually meant to not even have it in the room. Um, but anyway, um, so um, so Pokemon Sleep, somehow they were going to make sleep more interesting, which is completely ridiculous. I mean, sleep isn't supposed to be interesting. It's supposed to be not interesting. It's supposed to be, you're supposed to be, you know, you know, recharging basically. Yeah, dreams can be interesting. I mean, were they try were they trying to infiltrate sleep like the Molson Coors Super Bowl ads from a couple of years ago, where they were suggesting that you play something through the app as you're going to sleep and it helps you to think and dream about Pokemon? as you're falling into that first state of sleep? They never, I could never find any explanation about what it was actually going to be like. So I don't know the answer to that. Hmm. Marketers have created a term called pester power, AKA the nag factor. What is this? Um, so when children, were beginning to be discovered as a lucrative um, market. Um, this was starting like in the 1980s when advertising to kids really exploded, mostly you know, because the Federal Trade Commission was hampered in became because of a lot of pressure on Congress, corporate pressure on Congress. They 
um, were defunded for a while and also they their ability to regulate marketing to kids was significantly limited. And then in 1984, Ronald Reagan, um, under Ronald Reagan, the Federal Communications Commission deregulated children te children's television, and it became okay to create a program for the sole purpose of selling toys. And within a year, the 10 best selling toys were all linked to media. And so um, what corporations began targeting um, children, wanting them to pester or to nag their parents. And in 1998, for whatever, in 1998, a company called Western Media International uh, did a study on nagging. And it wasn't a study to help parents cope with nagging. It was a study to help corporations help children nag more effectively. They called it the nag factor. And, and, you know, basically it was a study to find out, you know, as one colleague said, how to make parents' lives absolutely miserable. They identified two kinds of nagging, persistence nagging, which is gimme, 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 and importance nagging. And they encouraged um, uh, corporations to provide kids with reasons why they should have this product. They found that that might be more effective. I mean, it's completely ridiculous. And, you know, this was early on, I mean, Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood or Fair Play, we started that in 2000. So, um, the nag factor was useful to us because people really were horrified and it was a good way of illustrating why the corporate takeover of childhood is not good for children or parents. So in the United States, corporations are better at masking their intent. But in this book, I went and looked at, you know, what's going on in other countries. And, and as the United States was in the early 2000s, they're just up front about, you know, the importance. Marketing articles are up front about the importance of nagging and how you need to get kids to nag or pester their parents. Yeah, it sounds like they're encouraging that nudging process that has become so popular in the last few years. Now, based on the numbers in this book, and this is another one of those disturbing things, 53% of 11-year-olds in this country own a smartphone. That's more than half. 32% of 10-year-olds, that's nearly a third. 19% of 8-year-olds, that's one in five. But pretty much 100% of kids who are at public schools are on a tablet, an iPad, some sort of smart device like that throughout the course of the school day. I've begrudgingly come to accept that. I'm not crazy about it. I just understand it's part of what it is. And that honestly counts as part of their screen time, what they may get a little bit later on for my eight and six-year-old. I think in our school, we lucked out on the advertising front though, Susan, because I don't see and I asked my kids about this as well. I don't think there's a whole lot of 
corporate advertising going on within our schools, but it sounds like that's not the case in a lot of schools. Marketing well, has apparently become invasive in many public schools. How has this happened? Well, you know, first of all, um, if your kids are using a, the Google, if they're using a Google platform in schools, they, you know, what Google is doing and the reason Google is there is to inculcate, you know, brand loyalty. And so, you know, even if there aren't commercials, if, if you're using, if they're being handed Chromebooks and, and um, or iPads, you know, then Apple and Google are um, basically marketing to kids even in schools. Um, and, 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 and I think that, that it's very important to understand that commercialism doesn't just sell products, it sells um, habits and values and behaviors. And so, so even if, if you, know, you, you say no to a product that's being marketed you know, to a child, what the child is learning is the importance of acquiring things. And, 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 and part of that message can be, you know, your worth or your value depends really on what you own. But the other thing that happens in so many um, educational apps is, is that, that the focus is on gamification which sounds good because play, you know, hands-on creative play is educational, you know, for kids. But, but the thing about the gamified, you know, apps, educational apps that I looked at is that, that they're built on not to um, help kids get immersed in whatever they're learning, but to reward them for getting a correct answer, you know. So you you have levels, or you have stars, or you know. So so that's another value of commercialism is that external rewards are more important than an extrinsic motivate intrinsic motivation. What is prodigy? Prodigy um, is a math game that um, has been very popular in schools, or I should call it an alleged math game. It, it, it markets itself as A, being free, and B, helping kids to learn to love math. So I spent a lot of time playing Prodigy and, um, and what I found is, first of all, I was continually pestered to get my parents to pay for an upgrade. And in the parents' portal, you know, they were claiming that an upgrade would help kids, you know, do better with math. But the other thing that I noticed about Prodigy, and I think this became increasingly clear as the product developed is that the math was almost irrelevant. 
I mean, Prodigy was all about fighting wizards and having cute animal companions. It was like Harry Potter and Pokemon and Fortnite wizard battles. And so the wizard battles, that was when you did a math, a math program, a math problem rather. That's when you did a math problem. And um, what I thought at the time is, wow, the math could just be completely lifted out and anything could be put in there. And in fact, um, the last I like Prodigy was coming out with Prodigy English, you know, where, you know, it's, I assume the same wizards and, and all of that except you're not doing math, now you're doing English or some form of English. And, and also um, as Prodigy developed, it became, it became a sandbox game like mine, Minecraft or, um, or Fortnite where you could see other kids and you could play with other kids. So then it became very clear which kids had parents who spent money on the premium version and, and which kids didn't. And it was even like, if you got the premium version, you could fly through the air. And if you had the regular version, you, you know, were slogging along in the dirt. So it, it's the idea that this was being promoted as free when really what it is, is what's called a freemium which means it starts out free, but there's enormous pressure, you know, to, you know, get the premium version in order to get the full app experience. Um, but also that, um, that it, it set up like class differences in school, the kids whose parents could afford it and the kids whose parents couldn't afford it and everybody could see who those were. And, you know, in, a, in any school and, you know, certainly in a public school, it, it's wrong to introduce products that claim to be more effective if you pay for them. I, I can't say that Prodigy is more effective if you pay for it. And um, it didn't look like that that it was particularly effective at all at teaching math, math from their own research. Um, but, but, you know, that's so cruel to make, um, to make class and having money um, part of, of what's offered to kids in school to, to heighten those discrepancies is just so unfair. So I guess all this leads to the question of, is there cause for hope? Because I'll be honest with you, Susan, other than some individual examples I see of parents trying to do the right thing and buck the ever-increasing popular digital and commercialization trends, I don't really see it at the wide scale level at all. So are you hopeful? And if so, why? Yeah, um, there's a lot of terrible stuff going on in the world right now. Oddly enough, um, there's more hope now for um, 
for actually regulating the way that big tech, you know, deals with children than there ever has been. Um, so I am more hopeful. Um, and, you know, um, I've been doing this advocacy for over 20 years. And so the fact that there are now three bills in Congress that got out of committee, some with bipartisan support, some of them, and are now, you know, could be before the Senate if the Senate will allow that to happen. That's huge pro progress. I mean, when I started talking about marketing to kids, people just laughed at me, hmm. really, or, you know, or, or the, you know, the colleagues that I found, you know, we were just told, this is never going to change, you know, this is ridiculous, this is the way it is. But now we actually have people in government and the FTC concerned about what's going on with big tech and kids. That's a, that's a huge, that's huge progress. Whether these bills will pass or not, I don't know, but, but it's from my perspective that that's still progress. And then Britain actually passed a design code, you know, where, um, where people designing websites where there might be a child who could use it have to take the well-being of children into account. I mean, that's that's a big deal. California just also passed a design code law. Um, so, but also advocacy around marketing to kids, um, particularly around technology, has really taken off. Um, you know, when when fair play started you know it was you know just a couple of people and now you know they they've got you know a, a reasonable a reasonable sized staff and um they're they're actually working with members of congress and helping them develop these bills social change doesn't come from the top down, it comes from the bottom up, good social change or, or you know, social change that has to do with equity. It comes from the bottom up. And I think that what we have to realize is that it takes a long time and that goes back to stamina. I mean, activists really need stamina. It's not gonna happen quickly. And I don't want to completely gloss over chapter 12, but perhaps this will serve as a good motivator for anybody listening to this conversation right now to go out and buy the book. Chapter 12 is resistance parenting suggestions for keeping big tech and big business at bay. It includes advice for infants and toddlers. Spoiler alert, they shouldn't get any screen time. Preschool and kindergarten age kids then also elementary and middle school age children as well. She is Susan Lynn. The new book is Who's Raising the Kids? Big Tech, Big Business, and the Lives of Children. Get it now wherever books are sold. It is a hugely important book. Susan, thank you so much for writing this and thank you for the time today. Well, thank you. It was really fun to talk to you. Thanks.
Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.